Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. And welcome in. It is indeed Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 220. Rich Kimball and Carrie Haskell with you, brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength couple of fine conversations for you coming up this week on the podcast. In the second half, we talk with Oscar-winning songwriter and singer John D. Nicola. He was co-writer of the Academy Award-winning songs from the film Dirty Dancing. He's got a new album, a new single, and a new video, all of them called She Said. And we'll talk with John about that and a little Dirty Dancing talk as well coming up later on. But up first, legendary sports writer Lee Montville, a longtime writer for the Boston Globe, uh, later with Sports Illustrated, the author of a number of books. His most recent takes a look at the 1969 NBA Finals, and it's called Tall Men, Short Shorts. And we've had Lee on the podcast to talk about the book, but we thought we would invite him back to discuss the legendary Bill Russell, who passed away last weekend. And so here's our conversation with Lee Montville. Lee, good afternoon. Good afternoon to you, Rich. Um, shocking news yesterday, although you know, when a man is that age, I guess it it shouldn't be shocking. But Bill Russell just seemed like such a, a force of nature. I guess there was a part of me that thought he would always be around. Yeah, but, it you know, it, it seems like the train is pulling out for a whole lot of people from that time. Johnny Egan, who was a great basketball player from Hartford, Connecticut, and played for the Lakers in the same series, uh, he died like a week ago, and Tom Heinsohn certainly, and Casey Jones, Sam Jones. It's uh, it, it's it's just it's just what happens, isn't it? Well, it sure is. Well, uh, I, your book is uh, so wonderful. We've talked with you about that, and one of your assignments in covering the finals back in 1969 was to make sure that player coach Bill Russell called in for a column. For the Boston Globe, can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like? Yeah, well, I, I kind of invented the column. Um, I I was 25 years old covering the covering the, the playoffs, uh, the Celtics and the Lakers, and Bill Russell. And I, I was, you know, just new to the scene and, and very rough around the edges. And Bill Russell was 35 years old his last his last season. You know, rich and famous and. Uh, he was the coach and and the star player, and uh, so our, our our social situation was kind of different, you know. <laughs> and I, I was always kind of like an annoying little guy on the side, I think, um, that, that that just bothered him a little. But anyway, the papers back then they they all they all kind of went for a thing where they would have uh, one of the players do a first-person story, an as-told-to story after every game of the playoffs. Um, and, and the record American had John Havlicek, and the, the, the um, Herald American had, uh, had had Red Arback, and the Globe had nobody. And so I went to my boss, Annie Roberts, and I said, you know, we should get somebody. And he said, well, everybody's taken. He said, who would we get? And I said, well, I think we should try Bill Russell. And he said, do you think he would do it? And it was clearly an idea that it'd come from nowhere, you know. And I said, let me go ask him. And I asked him, and I think it was like 200 bucks a column. And he said, "He said, yeah, I'll do that, sure. And, and as far as I know, that was the only 
the only business thing. There was no handshake. There was no contract, no nothing. He said, sure, I'll do it. And somehow must, they must have got the 200 bucks a column to him. And he wanted to do it by just calling up the Globe, the Globe offices and talking into one of those old dictaphone machines that they had like a blue plastic record that recorded his words. And so he would talk after each game into the, the in there over the phone into the machine, and some kid from Northeastern would type it up, and it would be in the paper the next day. <laughs> and my job, after every game, win or lose, was to say to Bill, um, uh, "Don't forget to call the Globe." And it, it was a, kind of a precarious job after some of the losses. Um, but I, I would just go, and Bill, don't forget to call the Globe. I was, I was like a, a nagging wife or a mother or something, you know. <laughs> and as you pointed out in the book, Leah, the relationship was perhaps best described as distant. There were times when he would uh, welcome you and have a great conversation, and then other times just uh, pass by and not give you the time of day. Yeah, about one time out of every five or six. Um, it, it was a far different situation, you know. Uh, there wasn't a big media crush after these practices. I would be alone sometimes in the locker room, you know, with the Celtics and me. And uh, and, and so I'd kind of have to wait for Bill Russell every day because he was the coach and you'd have to find out, you know, who was hurt and what was going on. And uh, I was a constant thorn in his side. <laughs> but every once in a while, it would just be Bill and me and, and I would ask him some question. I, I would not know where it came from. It would it would whet his interest a little, and he would talk for a while, and we'd talk back and forth for 20 minutes. And I would go away saying, well, Bill is my friend now. We're in good, good – it's a great situation. And then the next day I would say, hey, Bill, how are you? And he would walk right by me like he'd never seen me before in his life, uh, which is his prerogative, you know. Well, and then in Game 7, Will McDonough asked you to go in and find out if Russell was going to retire. Yeah. Um, you know, Game 7 was crazy. It was a crazy ending. The Celtics win. It's at, at the L.A. Forum and the whole thing. That, that there was a whole situation. They were going to drop a few thousand balloons to celebrate and all of that, and the balloons never dropped. And, and uh, Will Chamberlain took himself out of the game and, it was just a bunch of things, and, and I'm standing outside, and Russell had the, the locker room door closed for quite a while after they won the game, and Will McDonough came, comes up to me, and I'm, I have a thousand different ideas going in my head, and McDonough says, uh, you got to do me a favor. You have to go ask Russell if he's going to retire, and I said, well, why don't you go ask him, <laughs> and he said, well, Russell hates me. He would never even talk to me, so... I, I said, sure, I'll, I'll do that. So I had all these things, and I'm trying to put the story together, and I keep looking over at Russell, and 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 I'm trying to I'm trying to get him all by himself. And he, he's going through the stages of taking off his uniform, coming back from the shower, putting on his clothes, and it's like at the end the end of the whole interview time, and he's standing there with Jim Brown, the football player and actor, you know, um, and he's just talking. And finishing up, you know, tying his tie and stuff. And I say, I got to go ask him now. And and I go over and and you know, these are the two big, I would say, civil rights activists of the time. You know, and from from an athletic.
standpoint, you know, they and, and perhaps Muhammad Ali and, you know, proud black men. And I, I'm like five foot eight and uh, a very white guy with, with red hair and freckles. And I go up to Bill and I say, uh, uh, and I, when I get nervous, my voice kind of goes up a little bit. You probably heard this right here. Um, and, and my voice goes up and I go, uh, Bill, uh, is there a chance you're going to retire now? And Jim Brown, you know, who's a movie star, he looks and he says in a, a much deeper voice, he says, uh, retire. The man just won the world championship. Why would he think about retiring? And Bill just kind of nods to that. And I go, oh, okay, all right. And then I had to say to him at the end, I, I had to say one more thing. I had to say, don't forget to call the Globe. <laughs> and, uh, and he didn't. He'd called the Globe. And then he'd retired. He did retire. He retired about two months later and sold the story to Sports Illustrated for $10,000. <laughs> We're talking with Lee Monfield here on Dantem. Well, uh, we know about Russell's basketball career, but his work on civil rights uh, uh, was certainly a hallmark of his life. And he didn't just talk the talk. As you point out in the book, he had attended the uh, Summit for Black Athletes in Cleveland. He had run an integrated basketball camp in Mississippi and always had a a challenging relationship with the city of Boston. I think uh, in the book you quote him as calling Boston a flea market of racism. Yeah, um, which is a pretty colorful term right there. Uh, he 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 did have a tough a tough relationship with Boston. I I think he brought some of that on himself. I I I, I will say that um, because there, there were other African American players who played here and wound up living here and staying here, like Casey Jones and Satch Sanders, you know, and Sam Jones. They, they, they all went through without without the problems that, that Bill Russell had. Um, he, he he was quoted in a, a Saturday Evening Post article, you know, saying, I just play for myself. I don't play for the city of Boston. I don't play for anybody else. I, I play for myself and my teammates and, uh, you know, the heck with the city of Boston. And and for sure, some bad things happened to him. Um, Red Arbeck always had the philosophy the, of the bad apple. He would say, you know, if something happens to you, it's the bad apple who brought it around. You know, there's a million good apples out there. There's people who carry you off the court when you win these championships. Um, but but Bill Russell never bought the bad apple philosophy. Or he, he kind of thought that there, there were a whole lot more bad apples than uh, Red said. Now, he was not Red Auerbach's first choice to take over as coach. Yeah, there's like different stories about about all of that and i think it just kind of evolved to that the idea that the the best chance celtics had for, for bill russell to play another season or three as it turned out was for someone that bill russell really liked to be the coach and there's nobody that bill russell liked better than bill russell <laughs> um so so it, it kind of evolved that way. It, it wasn't, you know, and Russell and, and Red Arby, he, he was the first um, African-American coach of any team in professional sports, really, in the United States. And uh, that wasn't one of the thoughts. The whole thought was, you know, Bill will play and Bill will be the coach and Bill will make himself play very hard. And, uh, and it all worked out. It sure did. 
Well, he's certainly the greatest winner in the history of American sports. Uh, he was a guy who focused more on, on, on defense and, and rebounding and, and wasn't always concerned with scoring. There were other people that could do that. Does that make it harder to figure out where his place in history ought to be? I suppose. You know, I mean, he, he was the cerebral guy, and, and Wilt Chamberlain was the physical guy. You know, Wilt Chamberlain had all the physical attributes and and. So Wilt was kind of Sparta, and 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 Bill Russell was Athens, and he outthought Chamberlain. He he figured out the geometry of the game and what he had to do to keep Wilt away, and and how he could help his teammates. And it 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 is hard to to quantify that, you know, especially in uh, in the age of analytics and all of that stuff. But I I mean. I think your gut your gut tells you if the if the guy has won all these uh, these eleven championships, he was pretty darn good. Speaking of Chamberlain, they had a falling out after Russell's comments following that uh, game seven in the sixty nine series. Uh, was it twenty four years that they didn't speak to each other? Did they patch it up at the end of Wilt's life? Yes, they did, um, and, and the, the, there was a nice ceremony. Bill Russell at the Garden, and, and Wilk came to that. They had patched it up. Uh, Russell Russell went on a speaking tour after after the, the series was over, and he was at the University of Wisconsin, and it was supposed to be no press and just talking with the kids. And 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 of course, a, a reporter snuck in, and and Russell said some nasty things about Wilt about how Wilt took himself out of the game, and you know. I'd have to be, you know, dead to be coming out of a game like that and stuff like that. And, uh, and of course, the, the reporter put him in the paper and the Associated Press picked it up and it went across the country. and They didn't talk for 24 years. Now, they've did... been friendly. They've been friendly. They've been to each other's, other's house for, for Christmas, for Thanksgivings, you know, for a bunch of stuff. Now, did your relationship with Russell evolve over time? Not, not really. Um, you, you know, I mean, he was gone after after that. He was gone. Mm. Uh, I, 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 I did one story on him when he was the coach for a short time at uh, at, at, at Sacramento. I, I went out to Sacramento and I said, "How is this going to be?" And it's almost like I, I was a brand new guy and he was a brand new guy, and we just talked. And you know, glad to meet you. How are you? You know, <laughs> and uh, it. it it was a whole different arrangement at that time. Um, so, so I never really saw much of him after that that season. I I just had that one little window, you know, where I had, had my self interest was 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 very big at the time, and uh, and and that was our relationship. Well, if you want to remember uh, what Bill Russell was like in that uh, last great season, that championship season of nineteen sixty nine. Uh, if you haven't already, read Lee's wonderful book, Tall Men, Short Shorts. Uh, Lee, uh, thank you so much at a short notice for coming on to talk with us this afternoon. We always appreciate it. Thank you, Rich. Always good to do it. That's Lee Monfield talking about Bill Russell here on Downtown the Podcast. We'll take a break for a word from 
Cross Insurance, and then we're back with John DiNicola next. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Oscar-winning songwriter John D. Nicola. It's the title cut from his most recent album. He's got a great new video out that accompanies it. It's called She Said. We had a chance to talk with John about the making of both the single and the video. John, welcome back. Good to talk with you again. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, my gosh, you know, we talked about this uh, before with you. You, uh, you didn't start as a recording artist until... Uh, a number of years into your career, but boy, it's working out quite well. The the album is terrific, and uh, this song is it's just wonderful. Oh, I I appreciate it. Yeah, I I don't know what prompted prompted it really. Uh, Twenty nineteen, I I think I just started, uh, and we may have spoken about this last time. I think I just started uh, recording in this new studio that I had in my barn in upstate New York, and. Uh, one thing led to another, and uh, all of a sudden, I'm putting my voice on songs that I had written uh, for other people. That that was the first record, the Why Because, which included my version of uh, you know the songs I co-wrote for Dirty Dancing, both Hungry Eyes and The Time of My Life. And then, um, really, once the pandemic hit, I, I was in the barn and and working by myself, which was new. And uh, so th- this album, she said, and including this song, she said, were um, you know just m- me without a without a um, you know a, a direction. You know, just uh, as most of the time as a songwriter, I'm always whatever the assignment is. I'm trying to write a song that John Waite might want to sing, or you know. And here it was all me, so I didn't have anybody to. It was sort of liberating and have anybody to think about other than myself. And I just let it <clears throat> kind of pour out of me and uh, kind of fun to see, you know, where, it, wh- how it ended up. Cause it, it kind of um, explained to me and anybody else who might want to listen who I am as an artist. So it, it's a, a real, um, a lot of fun to make this record. Well, and I think about the influences that must have played into this. There's a real, uh, to me, it's got a real great Philadelphia soul sound to it. Yeah, isn't that, yeah I'm glad you said that. Uh, I, I guess that's right. And, um, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm looking at some of my notes about what, you know, what I thought I was doing and, and you know, indie rock mixed with 70s soul. So, 
that's just um, uh, it was a little surprising to me that that much um, kind of silly soul came out melodic. It's, I think it's mostly melodically, right? Mm. Even in production, I mean, she said the beginning it almost could sound like a Barry a Barry White track, you know. Well, and the video is so terrific, too. Uh, can you talk about uh, the making of the video that really, for you, was a, a family production in many ways? Yeah, exactly. Um, well, my son has a company, uh, Anima Works, Anima Works, with uh, his partner, Hill. And, um, you know, they just approached me and said, you know, this is the idea we have for, um, for She Said. And um, they, the first thing they wanted to do was shoot it on 16 millimeter film, uh, which is kind of gives it that unique look that it has, and and it's kind of a, um, you know, it's it, it just what they put together. Uh, it, it's sort of a surreal. Uh, it's a, it, to me, it looks like a film as opposed to a video, and and um, it. Um, you know, they they just wanted it to be sort of interpretive and, and trippy and and um, you know, I think I think I think they did that. Oh, it's all that. It's uh, yeah, it's a very dreamlike video. I'm like, what? Okay, first of all, what's up with the blindfolds? What's going on there? And then, uh, boy, yeah. the the scenery is great too. Was was this shot in upstate New York? Yes, this is shot up up around uh, our place, pretty much on on our hollow here. Um, so, um, yeah, the, the blindfold, you know, I, I, I asked both my son and Hill and, you know, it, it is completely interpretive. My, my interpretation, um, is, you know, the, the young lady that's blindfolded and then there's the cowboy, you know, the young <laughs> lady sort of representing, um, sort of feminine and, and womanhood and, and, uh, and he is um, the cowboy. Is maybe the even though he comes off kind of sensitive, he's he's the macho part of it, and the, you know the male, and and then the priest is our longing to. And, and again, this is just me. This is not what anybody said. This is just what I see. <laughs> the priest is uh, sort of our longing for answers and and understanding and. Uh, you know, uh, looking to religion or, or, or not. And, uh, you know, at the end of it, at the end of the dream or the sleep or the, the awakening, the blindfolds come off, right? And, and, and you're, uh, you know, you've been enlightened, I guess. Yeah, and I, I love the ambiguity of it, too, that it's, it's really right. in many ways left for the viewer, the listener, to interpret themselves what it all means. Right. It's kind of a surreal dream, you know, to me that that's you know and uh, you know i guess when i'm i i'm being attacked and the the inhabitants of you know the the three aforementioned people are being flat you know flashed and and all that i mean that's just i don't know that's the world that's life that's you know so it it's it's definitely something to ponder and and pull your own um you know your own um, conclusions. You know that my wife is is sort of the woman that is sort of just kind of 
dreamily walking around and the, you know the first scene where um we're on the tractor and and uh, you know she's saying the words from the song there um it, it 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 i think underlying it is a little bit of an homage to what my son knows about us you know what i mean <laughs> so it's um it's meant to sort of um be open ended and and you know well, it's great. I, I love it, and it fits the song wonderfully. We're talking with a singer-songwriter, John D. Nicola, here on Downtown. Our friend Kenjamin Franklin said, I had to ask you about the Kodak connection. Well, yeah, no, that's um, interestingly, you know, um, not everybody shoots on film these days, you know, literal film. And so Kodak, um, they... they kind of gave us a nod on their Instagram, um, uh, just kind of pointing to it. And, you know, they have a big following. So it was a, it was a nice um, push that we got from Kodak. And, again, um, you know, it's a, it's a process. When you shoot on film, you have to, you know, it's so different than, than digital because digital you can see what you're doing, <laughs> kind of. With with film, it's like it's in the can. You know, you remember the days when you, mm. you know, you don't know, you didn't know what shot you took necessarily to, till you uh, developed it. And so it's the same thing here with film. And um, you know, it's a process. They, they got to you have to hope you got what you think you got, and then it gets you know it gets digitalized, of course, because we wouldn't be able to watch it on YouTube if it wasn't. But but, uh, it, you know, it's uh, not unlike what I do here in the studio. Um, I am always running tracks through my 16-track tape machine to get the full um, sonics, you know, and then I'll then it gets digitalized. Um, and that's the same thing with film. You know, you can't, you know, all digital stuff, whether it be film or music, is samples of sound enough to fool your ear to thinking you're hearing or seeing everything right but you're not you know with you with analog you are seeing the hearing the full sound and you're seeing um you know it, it's, it's analog there's not samples tricking your eye or your ear well, the album is wonderful too. Uh, she said, "Kicks it off," and it's a it's a great start to the album. But I, uh, boy, I like so many of the songs on there. Float on hope is terrific. I think "Morning Dew" might be my my second favorite song after she said. Wow, cool. Yeah, you know that's um, that's an early influence on me. That was like Jeff Beck and with Rod Stewart on the first record. They they did it similar. You know, I you know kind of did my version of what they did. Because that song's been done by many people, uh, that was one of two songs that I I didn't write. Um, that's a, you know that's a a, a remake uh, along with "Can't Find My Way Home," the Blind Faith Steve Winwood song. But um, you mentioned "Float on Hope." That we are. I was just speaking with the animator today. We're we're doing an animated um, mouse, basically <laughs> the mouse from the mouse uh, in the Amazon. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, going to be a, hopefully a, you know, the, the song is not subtly, but it's without preaching. It's about global mm -hmm. warming and, and the, um, 
the video, uh, the animation is uh, is looking good. I, I, I took me a, a year to find the right animator for it, and uh, I think I have her. She's a young young woman who's from she's from Texas, but she's living in New York City. And uh, we were on the phone this morning uh, how to how to approach that. So. Well, that's, that's awesome. And, the next, the and, next video. And uh, now, did you write Breathe Deep? Because that's a terrific song as yeah. well. No, no, that, that, I wrote that one. I wrote that along, uh, that and four other songs with uh, a, a lyricist that I've worked with, Patty Maloney. I've worked with her for many years, and we sort of finish each, each other's sentences musically and lyrically. So it's been a, yeah, she, she came up with... Um, Basically, I had that music, and um, I'm trying to think if I gave her any indication. I, you know, the music and the melody, and I, I don't remember if, if I came up with Breathe Deep or she did. I think she did. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's, uh, that was a fitting song for um, the time. It still is. <laughs> All right, I have to ask you, John, we're coming up. It's hard to believe on the 35th anniversary of the release of Dirty Dancing. We've talked with you about uh, the, the process of creating the song with our friend Frankie Previtt and uh, Donald Markowitz, but what, what about the reaction? When did you first know from the filmmakers that, uh, first of all, I've had the time of my life was not only in, uh, and did you know from the get-go that they were looking for a song to be the big finale? Well, we kind of knew, you know, we knew they were they were about to film that scene they were filming at a sequence they were going to start with that that scene and they had nothing and they had listened to 150 songs and they were using a temp track by lionel richie that they were you know wondering how how they were gonna what they were gonna do and uh and uh as patrick um swayze had told frankie uh, you know after the fact you know, everybody was like, oh, man, we, what are we going to do here? We, we've got to get to film over with because it's, you know, without that song, I don't want to say it all depends on that song, but once they had the song, Patrick said to us, then and, and then they were able to film that scene. And, in fact, they're filming it to our demo because they hadn't recorded the final yet. So that's why it's a little out of sync when Patrick stops and, and sings it to her. He's singing to... Frankie's voice and Frankie and Rochelle Capelli singing to the demo, and um, um, they they felt once they had that scene under their belt, they had a whole new you know vision of what the movie could be. They knew where what they were working towards, but uh, you know it's it was just one of those situations. And, and Emil Ardolino will would would said to me many times before he passed on that. It was just a confluence, Emil was the director, a confluence of things you could never make happen. They just happened. You know, it just, that song came along at the right time. It was the perfect song. And, um, you know, Jennifer and, 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 and um, uh, Patrick were just so, so stellar. You know, I, I always say what, you can watch that movie many, many times and not see acting, you know, it's, mm. still, you know, you know, you don't see, you know, they get those movies where, you know, if you watch it the second, third time, you go, oh, they're just reading the lines. <laughs> Somehow those guys just captured something 
Well, and, and you, you can watch over and over, and it doesn't, you know, doesn't bore you. It doesn't look like uh, they're phoning it in, you know. And, and it's not just writing a song, but you, you had to write, what was it, a, a seven-minute version because yeah. this was going to be such a long scene. Right. Well, as Frankie would say, that you know, when he first got the call from uh, Jimmy Einer, um, he said it had to be seven minutes. And, you know, Frankie said, well, I guess we have to write MacArthur Park. And, you know, <laughs> the other thought is, well, it can't be a single if it's seven minutes long. But, of course, they were able to edit it. And, you know, we, we um, listen, it, it, it was, uh, you know, they needed a song. We fell into the right song. And, uh, you know, it, it you know, Do- Donnie Markowitz and I just kind of came up with you know, there's a whole push-pull in that song. You know, the whole time the verse is, is pushing you and then pulling back and then pushing you and pulling back. And then there's the B verse, which kind of goes to a new key, which feels different. And then it brings it on home to that big chorus. And, and I, I always um, mention, you know, that there's a particular chord change that um, many, many songs were written with, and it, and it involves, you know, the, a major key going to the minor sixth chord mm. to a, either a four or a two minor to the five. It, it, it's a chord progression you all recognize. It's a lot of the um, 50s music was built on that. But what makes this one so different is it, it goes to that home key, goes to that minor sixth, and then we modulate and just go up to the flat seven. I know this kind of sounds technical to you, but it it uh, it alters what that the the sound and and it makes the melody just kind of soar. Well, it's 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 great you say that because we had Jennifer Warren's on a few years ago, and and she was oh, talking wow. about uh, not only is it a great song, but she said it's a smart song. Hmm. Interesting. You know, I. I appreciate that, and of course, without her beautiful voice, you know, it isn't what it is. Um, but I have to tell you, we we kind of, you know, with with music, I, I, I'm a gut guy. I don't, there's no thought involved. So, whatever we found, um, you know, same with Hungry Eyes. It, it's Hungry Eyes played itself down on my keyboard in 15 minutes. You know. It, <laughs> I'm a I'm a gut writer. I just go with with what I hear. What what's and and I, I often think it's it's from years and years of taking in, listening, um, to all the music that we devour. And and as a as a someone who, who's always had music in his blood, uh, it's sort of a regurgitation, but you know, with your own kind of take on on the eons of music that you've taken in. So um, to say to say smart, I appreciate, but we weren't thinking. <laughs> well, thirty-five years later, it's uh, it's part of the cultural landscape, and uh, I suspect yeah. that uh, on the fortieth and fiftieth anniversary, people will still be enjoying the song and and the movie, and and uh, such a great combination. Uh, John, it's always good to talk with you. Congratulations on the wonderful new song. Uh, the video is available. You can find it on YouTube. You can go to John's website as well at john dinacola dot com, and lots of great information there. Uh, John, congratulations on a, a wonderful song and and video and thanks as always for making some time for us well thanks thanks for having me 
You can also find all the stuff on omadrecords.com, O-M-A-D records.com. But again, thanks thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, and um, you know, I'd love to do it again. Absolutely. Thank you, John. Be well. Thank you. You too. It's John D. Nicola here on Downtown talking about She Said and getting in a little dirty dancing talk as well. 35 years. Okay, that that just seems completely impossible to me to think that Dirty Dancing came out 35 years ago this fall. Yeah, I I, I feel like I've seen it nearly that many times. Oh, yeah. Uh, my wife watches it, uh, so I'll, be, I'll come home from work and she'll have pop Dirty Dancing back in to watch again. Nobody puts Carrie in a corner. No. <laughs> uh, great music, fun movie, and uh, good new stuff, too, from John as well. Our thanks to John D. Nicola. Thanks to the great Lee Montville for talking with us about the legendary Bill Russell as well. And thanks to you for joining us. We'll see you next time right here on Downtown Podcast.